and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Before we get started, just a public service announcement that today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. You can listen to their audiobooks whenever and whenever you want and get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. That's www.audiobooksblackhistory.com. This reminds me of my old radio days at the New School Radio, so this is good. I'm happy to be joined by Chet Wise, who is the campaign director for Harlem for Change, uh, formerly Harlem for Obama a nonpartisan organization that is dedicated to promoting new ideas and advocacy for the village of Harlem. He was very influential uh, on the strategy team for Congressman Charlie Rangel, who Adriano Espaillat called an iconic incumbent who he could not unseat after two tries. And everyone kind of scratching their heads, some of those who were not in the loop, saying, how the heck did Congressman Rangel pulled this off. The last time he ran against Adriano Espaillat, um, Mr. Senator came within a few hundred votes from winning, and everyone, there were some people who were predicting that there was going to be an upset uh, on election night, but that's not what happened. The congressman ended up tweaking out another two-year term. And so I wanted to speak with Chet White because you were really on the ground. You were uh, paying attention to the, the campaign, the polling, and you really have a good sense of the street. One of the things that I've always respected about you and the work that you do, that you really do kind of tune in to what people on the street are saying. So if you can kind of give us an overview of the campaign and what you were hearing from the street and from the campaign. Well, I, I uh, of course, uh, uh, couldn't get away from hearing all the uh, foolishness about how demographics uh, was going to shape this election, and how uh, you know based on based on ethnicity, uh, you know SVI Adriano was going to win, um, and that uh, that votership was uh, uh, impossible to overwhelm, and uh, you know it's, it just got to be ridiculous to me, and telling people to their blue in the face that uh, Charlie has relationships throughout the district and beyond. And these are age-old relationships, and that is what you need to overwhelm. So people who tried to break this down into ethnicities were the real losers here because we had a coalition that was uh, wall-to-wall. It was river-to-river and from Central Park all the way up to the top of the Bronx, top of the boogie down. And those relationships uh, we didn't manufacture. Uh, Charlie Rangel had established them over his long career. Uh, of service. So uh, all we had to do was take those relationships and make sure they were active last Tuesday, and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. And, and talk about how he did that, because there were different coalitions uh, that are a part of the 13th Congressional District. Uh, you know, you have the clergy, and then you have the, you know, the people who are not tied to the church. Uh, the congressman alluded that this time around, his campaign was much more organized than two years ago. Um, what played a role in that switch. I know Rashida uh, Smith was campaign manager this time. I don't remember if she was the campaign manager the first time. No, she wasn't, but uh, Rashida was a, was a big player here. Um, Rashida set a point for, uh, of course, everything that went on. I didn't come into the campaign until the last maybe three and a half weeks. Uh, I saw some things that I felt needed to uh, be uh, taken care of, and I came in to take care of that. But um, Rashida was masterful. I mean, she comes out of uh, you know, groups like Cory Booker's campaign, so she knew her, she knew her stuff. But the coalition itself was of uh, you know some party clergy, uh, mostly uh, the Democratic clubs, 
but also uh, uh, some of these neighborhood clusters that uh, Charlie had served. And uh, we we felt like, you know, I felt like we were fine as long as we punched up the vote that we already had. Mm-hmm. Well, what were some of the challenges along the way? I, I think the challenges were, were mostly uh, uh, what they always are in uh, this kind of summer election, that um, you get people to uh, know uh, an election is coming. And, and I call this a soft election. A soft election is not like, you know, a presidential election. When I do something like a presidential election, it's a different strategy to me. It's pound, 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 uh, you know, a lot of voter registration and all of those factors. This, this doesn't uh, require that. This, that's not really effective to because uh, new voters are the hardest voters to me uh, to get to the polls in a soft election, not a presidential election. It's a matter of uh, identifying the people who vote in any election. Any election. You can have a vote for a dog catcher in the middle of winter. They're going to come. Make sure you sure up that vote. And it's a matter of doing a lot of pounding on the phone. But the nuance uh, piece of that, and the thing that I, I came to, I think the social media uh, campaign, visual campaign, uh, that's very important that you excite the voters that you have. To excite them at the right juncture. Yeah, that excitement carries over into the future election. So we we pretty much um, we pretty much had a had a standard election. Um, you know, we listened to all the stuff about uh, this this uh, race being divisive and all that other foolishness. That that ain't that's not us because we had no no we we had no no positive result in making this this whole thing a divisive uh, along ethnicities. We didn't have that. You know, you, right now you, you have an electorate that is not even half black. So how do you win an election with just black votes? So that, to me, that was foolish. And we just relied on the relationships we had. And that was it. That was all we needed. Mm-hmm. Well, spe- speaking to that, that voting electorate and the changing demographics, there was about 50,000 people, give or take a few thousand, who came out and voted. And I believe the congressional district had some 700,000 people in it, um, right. you know, giving a rough round rate. So w- within that small percentage of those who were active, I don't know how many people are registered, um, but right. people have said that it was going to be close, and, and, and I think the numbers suggest that. There were 20,000 respectively for Rangel and Espaillat, you know, probably taking away a couple of thousand votes, which, which is what took the congressman over. So there, there's certainly the, the, the notion that I think someone can make in terms of a legitimate argument that there are people... I don't buy the closeness there. I don't buy the closeness. All right. Uh, you, you spread it by four or five points. That's not a close election in a soft election. All right. So, so people need to relax on that. Um, Abstractly, when someone looks at the numbers, and I, and I get that within a primary, it's a heck of a lot different than if it was in a general election. Um, but, but, I, but I think that the voting turnout with the numbers coming that close, um, I think looking towards 2016, there are people kind of scratching their heads going, well, what does the district look like a couple of years from now? Not just with okay. the, the number shifting, but with the demographic shifting in terms of ethnicity. Right. You know, the, the race was played out somewhat through ethnic lines. You had, you know, Espaillat right. running on the fact that he would be the first Dominican American elected. Right. Uh, it didn't work for him, did it? It didn't work for him, did it? Now, here's, here's the thing, you know, uh, people who are not used to uh, being in situations where you're running a candidate was not in the majority of squad the ethnicity. People are not used to that. They have a different perspective on these kinds of elections. And I'm I'm totally foreign to that. I you know, I I cut my teeth as far as major elections in Denver. Denver. Lily White, Denver, Colorado. And uh, the first candidate I had was uh, Jesse Jackson. And I, I was doing the strategy for a I can't think. And here it is, you only had a 4% black population, got 40% of the vote. 
And in Denver itself, you know, we took over the city of Denver. It only had a 14% black population, and we still won. And why? Because we looked at the demographics and we did not run the candidate along racialized. We ran uh, along well, what our coalition wanted. And we built coalitions and we, and we were able to uh, not only uh, uh, get that vote, but we were able to have the mechanism that, that really presented the stage that the first black mayor of Denver would be elected. It's the same thing here. You know, it, we have to divorce ourselves from looking at uh, votes as far as if you have a majority of the ethnicity in a region, that's what you need to win. No, you got to have a campaign structure and a campaign theme and a resonance that goes throughout across ethnicity. It has to go through go throughout the district, and that's something that Charlie had already had. You know, we didn't have to build that for him. We have. So people who look at it as far as I don't think the demographic change that we had, we go down to like, you know, maybe 15 percent black. I care about it as far as people leaving the district. I'm mean, just speaking, you know, uh, philosophically. But candidates in 2014 have to appeal and serve every corner of their district. They will not win. They will not be effective if they were to win. Well, let's see. Mm-hmm. Well, looking towards that race in 2016, I listened to a radio interview the other day where Congressman Rangel said that he was actually going to groom someone to replace him. Um, he did not say who that was. That's, and I don't... That, 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 you know, I, I, he did not say that. All right. It's, 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 this, is, this is the other piece that is a myth. You do not groom an individual to ascend to your seat. That I, you know, I challenge people to show me three or four places where that has happened. The electorate would not respond to that. No, you influence a lot of people to be interested in your seat. And you, you, you groom them, if you're grooming them, by showing them how it's done or how the government. And Charlie, it's been that kind of force with us. You know, even before I came to New York, he was that kind of force with us. You know, very influential. <laughs> it's not one individual. It's, it's a whole squad of people who uh, have been watching, you know, the congressman for years and seeing what he does and what's effective. That's how you do it. Okay. Well, I was I was going by the interview that he did on the radio. I believe it was uh, Hot 95 or one of the radio, local radio stations, uh, where he acknowledged that that was something that he was going to be doing himself. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm with the congressman. With the congressman all day yesterday, and with the congressman tomorrow. I've never heard that kind of and that's contrary to what's been going on here. I will do my best to get you a clip of that. Uh, you can go ahead and get the clip, and I can get the congressman. All right? So <laughs> here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. There are a lot of people working in congressional offices, working in, in other offices, working in nonprofits, who've been deeply, deeply influenced by this guy. That's the kind of stage you want to set. The example that he set, especially in how he's been, he's been governing and how he's been winning consistently, we've all been watching it. So is isn't one individual that you... You park in the seat next to you like it's some natural ascension, you know. I mean, as soon as you do that, you disrespect the electorate. You know, you disrespect the right of grown men and women to make their own choices. You know, you influence a lot of people and let them run for it. That's what he's done. Mm-hmm. Given, given your grasp of some of the players locally, do you see anyone who would be a good person to step up and take that, that kind of challenge on? I see quite quite a number of folks, you know. And these are, these are folks, there's a difference between people who are uh, perpetual candidates or, um, you know, who say they want to, want, want to run for the seat and are really uh, trying to get strategies for 2016 already. And that contrasts with people who are actually working. They're either working in politics, they're working in nonprofits, 
they're interacting with communities, and they're in position to be successful in politics. It is a big difference. A lot of people want a political office, but there aren't a lot of people who actually work to be able to be effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to that point, I I remember I was reading an article, and they were asking people to report why they decided to vote for the congressman. And one of them uh, said, I voted for him because I didn't want to think of the thought of Harlem not being represented by an African-American. Yeah, some people were going to say And I thought that was an interesting point. Do you think, based on the culture uh, and history that Harlem has, um, the the notion of this district not being represented by an African-American, does that bother you? No, it doesn't bother me as long as that person is, is able to serve the entire district. That doesn't bother me. Um, but mm-hmm. here it is. I don't, I don't know why that's the overwhelming uh, concern here for uh, the subject, because had it not been for East Harlem, which is mostly Puerto Rican, that, you know, our coalition wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been as effective. It wouldn't have been effective enough to win. So what are we talking about? Uh, you look at the numbers without East Harlem, and they can't, they pounded out despite the fact that their elected officials, a couple of their elected officials endorsed Adriano. The people were with us. So uh, you got to look at it from the standpoint of um, if you're effective and your, your constituency uh, is broad enough, you're going to be all right. And in Charlie's case, it's not just being effective. It's that his broad constituency saw him pretty much as family. So um, it was Associated Press yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah, we're riding around. We're riding Charlie around the district. So I'm I'm behind him in the car, and you know, I get rung up by Associated Press, and they're saying, you know, what is it with uh, Charlie as far as, demographic thing. I said, you know, the way we, we really pull this off, uh, if you look at the harder, harder things, in Central Harlem, a lot of people know him or, you know, most people call him uh, Uncle Charlie. And I asked the reporter, do you know what they call him in East Harlem, in El Barrio? And she said, what? And I said, Uncle Charlie. And that was, that was it in a nutshell. You know, it's relationships that win mm-hmm. elections in 2014. Relationships, especially here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very enough. You, well, you were certainly tapped into the campaign, and um, I always know when Chet White believes in something because you get the emails, you get the text messages, you get the invites to go to the flash mobs. You get them. Um, you get them. You get bombarded. Yes, and, and you don't ever do that unless you truly do believe in someone's candidacy or a cause within the community. Exactly. Uh, and so when I saw that you got on, on board the way that you did, I knew there was something special that you believed about the congressman. Right, right. Well, you know, I've watched this yeah. for a long time. I was uh, a kid growing up in Baltimore, and uh, my congressman at that time was Perrin Mitchell. And Perrin Mitchell and, and Charlie Rangel uh, got together and started – the Congressional Black Caucus. And this is a way back in, you know, the 70s, and that was huge. That was huge. But to see some of the things as far as the legislation that came out of that group and came out of Charlie, uh, they were transforming its figures. And it, it, it was so profound, um, Charlie's impact. You know, the Congressman's impact. I, I, I got elected to, um, after... Um, did the first uh, or the 88 Jackson campaign. He got elected as a delegate uh, out of Denver. And I'm sitting in um, a room, a reception, where, um, you know, a couple of the Congress people were about to show up. And I'm sitting with uh, the guy who wound up being, eventually being mayor, Wellington Webb. We're sitting in the back of the room. And he says, uh, Chet, I want, I want to teach you one lesson. He says... When the way you tell the respect and power of an individual, you see how 
the room moves or the room shifts when they walk in. And these Congress people walked in the room, this crowded room, you know, it's buzzing and all that. Then Charlie walks in, and you can see the room just move toward the door, trying to meet this guy, trying to shake his hand, trying to take a picture with him. And I was like, wow. And uh, it was it's that kind of, of resonance, that kind of influence that I saw, you know, when I, when I would be down in the, the halls, you know, uh, uh, Congress doing stuff with uh, Jesse Jackson, or you know, you would see that whether whether it was other Congress people or the janitors. Charlie walked down the hall. Everybody moved, you know. And and yesterday we we're, we're going around, and he's just saying thank you to everybody. He's sitting in the back of a of a of a convertible, in the hot sun, you know, happy as a lark, and waving. And people were risking their lives crossing traffic just to to touch him, to say hello to, to him. He's supposed to be saying thank you to the community for the election. I saw more people thanking him. So it's, uh, it's just something that uh, a lot of these uh, wannabe politicians need to understand. Uh, relationships are very important. Very and that presence is not something that you develop, though. You either have it or you don't. Yeah, well, I think you need to work for it because I think once you get out there, what do you find that out? You know, it's not that you step up and you're ready to run. And a lot of people have that misconception. No, you have to do some work. You have to learn how to run, and you have to learn how to serve. You know, it's, it's, it's that you have to learn these things. Now, some people instinctively are better than others at it, but uh, those who don't commit themselves to working to achieve this usually fail. They can get all the money, all the endorsements, and they come, come sign up for the vote, and they're hovering like 8% if they're lucky. Is that what you think happened with Michael Waldron's campaign? No, I think something totally different happened with Michael Walker's Yeah, Because he was thought to be the upset, and then I don't, I don't know what happened. Uh, thought by who? You know, you got people talking. Oh, and oh there, there were strategists believing that he would take away the black vote. Hey, so there are strategists for everything, uh, Roy. The strategy doesn't mean they're any good. And, and people ask me when it's coming in, I say, you know, the first mistake is that he didn't move to Harlem in time to actually be a part of this political fabric. I've never seen him at a political meeting, you know. I know he's a reverend. He's a good reverend. And he does service in that church. That doesn't mean you're a politician. If that were true, you know, butts, butts would, have been, would have been congressman. So it takes a lot more. Yeah, and people tell me, oh, he's got 9,000 members. So I said, yeah, but, you know, a lot of them can't vote here. You know, so it's like, you you start off filing from as a resident of Jersey for a New York election. Uh, you know, to me, that's that's disrespectful of all of us who live here and been working politics since we've been here. You know that that uh, this this position itself is is for a leader of leaders, and politically. You know, come on, let's face it. He's not that. He's not that. He's, he, and he even states he's not a politician. Well, you know, if I've got my lights of buzzing and, you know, smoking, and you show up in my door and you can work on my lights, the last thing I want to hear is that you're not an electrician. So there, there are some things, you know, um, it's, it, to me it's, it's, not, it's not bad if people – like ministers and all that, want to run for political office. God knows. I know, I know that. I, I supported Jesse. But you've got to be, uh, you know, deeply rooted in politics in order to pull that off. I'm going to you. Mm-hmm. You know, all respect to him. Right. All right. But he's not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leading groups and everything else, and there's a lot of defense out there. Is that the leader of leaders for us politically? No. No. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, I, I just wanted to get your quick assessment. During the campaign, 
at one of the debates, uh, Congressman Rangel um, very humorously picked up the cell phone and had a, a sort of a skit that he did. Um, and yes. in that skit, he kind of touched on the experience or the non-experience of his opponent. What did you think of that skit? Right. I thought the press ridiculed it and everything else, and they were so smart with that. And I'm so glad that he did it because it resonated with our electorate. It resonated with our electorate. That's the kind of thing that our electorate loved. River to river, that's all they were talking about. So the press hands. It was very interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. And it was effective. It was very effective. I didn't design that, but I sure loved it. That wasn't me. It was it, it actually it became a famous YouTube clip and there were memes on the campaign. I mean it was it was somewhat of a microcosm of a presidential election. You know what would a, a mm-hmm. election like this be without uh, yeah. you know something like that to, to come out of it? I tell you, and the excitement provided in this campaign came from a four-year-old man from that all the way to him dancing with Farrah Burns at home shape. You know, he was excited and he was awful proud. And uh, that's what people love, you know. They know he's serving. You know, even the people who want to fence, all right, I'd run into some people with, you know, somehow we get into talking about the election, and it's like, tell it's too old. I said, oh, you know, okay, all right. So um, has he uh, ever helped anybody in your family? And then they go off. Yeah, he helped my mother do this. You know, my sister do this. Yeah, you know, my aunt do that. And I said, um, you want you want you want Congressman Rangel to remain your congressman? It's like, yeah, man, I can't I can't leave Charlie. Meant too much to our family. Mm-hmm. But it's the only thing well, we had to get in touch with. No, absolutely. Uh, and as and as I leave you. Um, the big elephant in all of the political rooms is whether or not Hillary Clinton would run for president. Would you yeah. endorse her the way that you did Obama? Uh, it, it depends. All right? It depends. I want to. I want to. But like I said before, this whole thing where we're stepping out to endorse Hillary before we get into the engagement zone is detrimental to her. It was detrimental against, against Obama because Democrats inherently do not wish to be told who to vote for. I don't care how wildly popular they are or how effective they can be or what the resume is. You know, I think the people who are stepping out to build the Hillary for 2016 campaigns openly, yeah, just a caveat, openly, are, are not being of service to Hillary. They need to lay that back. They need to organize, organize private. But you don't have to pound, pound, pound. You know, I got this Hillary for 2016 no, you got to start organizing, setting up the organization and setting up the capital base for her to be effective. But when you're openly doing that in a way that you think nobody else can possibly, possibly, possibly beat her in a primary, to get a kid like Barack Obama coming along that becomes the contrary. And automatically there's a tension, and when that person is smart enough to build an effective campaign, you got a problem. And so, you know, I want her to be president. I do what I do. I do. But I'm not going to stand out there and stand in a uh, 2016 sort of campaign and be active in that until she announces that she's going. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Chet Y, I, I thank you as always for your, your insights. Uh, it's always interesting to hear what you think about things. Um, and I'm sure that as the campaign for the presidency heats up in 2016, there will be a lot of people asking for your advice, including the Gist of Freedom. Yes, and I, um, I just want to thank everyone for coming out Tuesday and supporting our guy. Uh, it was really, uh, really heartening to see the kind of support. It really taught me a lesson about um, you know, how important it is to be good to people, just riding behind him yesterday and seeing the outpouring of love that he got all in every corner of this district, you know, that, that was a lesson about, you know, you be good to people, they will take care of you. That's what people need to understand mm-hmm. if they run office around here. 
That was a, that was a very good point, and I think in closing, I think Councilwoman Inez Dickinson, the best I was going out to vote, and I saw her campaigning on the street, handing out flyers, and she said, I, I started by telling people to vote for Charlie Rangel, and then I changed course, and I said, you know what? Now I'm encouraging people to vote, no matter who you vote for, because voting is so important. And, and right. so to your point about people getting out, um, yes, it, it was, it's always great when your candidate wins, but I think it's even better when you know that people are enthusiastic about the process, that they're right. willing to be engaged no matter who they vote for. Well, she, she you know, Anes Dickens is the unsung heroine of this whole thing because uh, Rashida ran the campaign. Inez was overlooking everything, everything. I love it. I mean, she did not micromanage. She tweaked. She advised. She was rock solid, and she was on point. I mean, she was right in every piece of advice. And, um, you know, not enough is said about her role here, but I'm saying that she was rock solid. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much again, um, and we'll be looking towards your advice and counsel over the coming months. Thank you, Roy. All right. Chet Y., that was uh, the executive director, campaign director of Harlem for Change, a nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting new ideas and advocacy for the village of Harlem. One more note. The show, uh, this podcast today, is being supported and sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our URL, which is www.audiobooksblackhistory.com, or alternatively, thegiftofaudiobooks.com, you can access Audible's offerings. Uh, now I am joined by Brandon Bryce. Brandon, are you there? I, I am here. How are you? I'm doing well. You are a very well-respected political commentator in the field. Um, I'm not sure what you go by. Are you conservative or moderate? Uh, I am a speaker for truth. I'm actually an independent. Uh. <laughs> uh, I, oh, really? This is news to me. I, I thought I at one point remembered you saying that you were a moderate. So it's good to be a seeker of truth no matter what your party affiliation is. Well, let me say, in the, in the great words of uh, one of my heroes, um, you know, if you are a liberal, if you're not a liberal, by the time that you're 25, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative, by the time you're 55, you have no brain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I always respect people who can memorize good quotes. That's something that I try to work on because I love good quotes. In fact, when my niece, one birthday, gave me a book full of good quotes. And so most of the people who know me know that I love them. It's even better to be able to memorize them at whim like that when you can just pull out of your hat. So much respect to you for that. Um, I... I know you kind of got the tail end of uh, Chet Wise's comments there, and so I wanted to pick up with you briefly on the most recent congressional race in Harlem, but then moving forward to some other pressing matters. But while I have you, what did you think of the congressional race? Were you surprised at all about the outcome? No, I mean, I, I, first of all, Chet is a very good friend, um, so kudos to Chet and congrats on his success. Uh, regarding Rangel, Rangel is a very good friend. He's a fraternity brother, and so I uh, always met him an alpha man. However, uh, when we look at the congressional race in Harlem, we've got I've got some major concerns. Number one, the last time there was about five to six percent voter turnout, and so I think I'm more impressed with the rate of turnout, uh, which was much higher than last year. Uh, excuse me, than last election than I, am, than I have been with past elections. I think, uh, you know, it was an interesting time because this race, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, was about keeping, was about the, the overall environment of whether Harlem would be still in control, in African-American control. Uh, there's nothing wrong. I have no issues against Adriano Espaillat. But I think that when you look at the bottom line, you have an African-American who is also part Puerto Rican and uh, running against a Dominican candidate in an area in Harlem that's about 40-30. 
uh, 40% Hispanic, 30% African-American. And so I think you're talking about the overall sustainability of can African-Americans hold on to Harlem as a seat of power, or has northern Manhattan become now uh, controlled by Hispanic Latino hands, and has Brooklyn now become the new black power uh, politically in New York? And so I think it was a very interesting dynamic. I think, uh, you know, I, I think the pastor, um, you know, definitely gave it his all, but I think that it, it really came down to Adriana Espayat and Charlie Rangel. And I think that, you know, kudos to both men, but I think Charlie held it out. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of elected officials holding office uh, for three, four, five decades. However, this is a man who also uh, is not afraid to speak. And I think that when we talk about the, the, the era of political correctness, uh, it's, enlightening, it's enlightening to know that there's an elected official. There are still people in Washington uh, who are not afraid to say what's on their mind for better or for worse. No, I absolutely agree with you, and, and I think that there was, uh, you know, that race issue was something that was injected, and I always think it's very dangerous when you touch on that, only because, you know, when you start talking about the race of one candidate, you start omitting the race of another candidate. People didn't give Charlie Rangel the credit. Now, people didn't know that he was probably African-American, um, you know, and then he also has Hispanic lineage as well. And, you know, so when you start chipping away at people's ethnicity, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the first Dominican-American, and that's your entire campaign, you know, you start to go down a slippery slope because you never know how people are going to receive that. And most polls don't really, you know, get on top of those numbers because most people don't want to admit that they would be voting for someone based on whether or not they have a Hispanic or African-American preference for them. Um, and then you got well, you know, and, 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 also, and also, and also, one of the things is that I think another reason that Charlie was successful is because let's look at voter registration. Uh, many Hispanic uh, and Latino residents in Harlem, many of them are still unable to vote. And so, even though they have the numbers, the real question, and I agree with Chad to an extent is are you registered to vote? And many are not. And so I think that until you get a candidate first uh, of a Latino-Hispanic descent that is willing to mobilize his, 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 his constituents, I think that's when you'll see uh, a Hispanic or Latino congressman. And it's coming soon. But I think that was maybe his downfall in that instead of playing politics, Maybe Adriano should have been more focused on uh, mobilization and, and getting the getting his constituents uh, registered to vote. Yeah, I, I was concerned with the in, the gentrifying vote. I don't know if anyone has done an analysis, but the newer Caucasians, the people who are really paying the higher rents and gentrifying the neighborhoods, I was curious to see where they would go. Would they want to stick with someone like Charlie Rangel, or would they want to go with someone different? And so I don't know if an analysis has been done on that. Um, but if there was any trepidation on my part, it was it was to really kind of look at where would they go. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that I think you're seeing about Harlem is the neighborhood is changing. Harlem is changing. Uh, the dynamics of Harlem is not what it used to be. And I think that before you can even talk about uh, white uh, residents moving into Harlem, you've got to focus on educated African-Americans uh, residing in Harlem and living in Harlem. And many of those folks uh, are still going with uh, Charlie Rangel. I mean, let's face it, this guy at one time was one of the most powerful men in D.C., for better or for worse. Uh, and so people still know the Rangel name. They know the Rangel brand. Uh, I think in this instance, you have one guy who, uh, in many cases, tried to make his entire campaign about uh, becoming the first Hispanic uh, elected in Manhattan. Uh, I think the other our candidate was a guy who, although he had nine to 10,000 congressional and parishioners, I don't think he spent enough sufficient time uh, in Harlem to really make a difference in terms of talking about turning an election. Um, and, and I think that that resonated clear that people tend to always go with the devil that they know as opposed to the devil that they don't know. Uh, so I think it was just by circumstance. Do I think this is Charlie's last hurrah? Uh, I do in many instances, and I do because I think that, you know, it's very difficult to be 80-plus years old and travel back and forth between New York and Washington, D.C. And so 
Um, the guy to look out for, and I, Neo and I have talked about this, is neither, in my opinion, my humble opinion, uh, Mr. Walren or Mr. Espine. The guy to look out for is the assemblyman, Robert Rodriguez. He's smart. Uh, he's, he's extremely intelligent when it comes to policy. And I think that's the guy people folks should be looking out for. Well, in, in every district, I think you need that sort of younger, youthful, uh, but also very, you know, smart individual to step up to the plate uh, and, and kind of and grab it because most people won't just hand it off to him. He's going to have to fight for it. Um, and I think this district is very unique as opposed to other districts where someone like Michael Walton could have been very successful. You know, I don't know what the politics were in his home state where he lived in New Jersey, but maybe he could have ran and been more successful running for something there as opposed to in Harlem. But I just think he was just, an, you know, it's a very unique district. Uh, to do that in other districts is not that difficult. You know, you could have moved in there, you know, six months before the election and had a very successful campaign if you're able to raise the money and have the campaign operation. Um, but I want to go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. You can wrap up. No, no I was going to say, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that when it comes down to what have you done for me, um, and I think that, you know, it boils down to there's a gentleman who went to, uh, wanted to run against Charlie Rangel a few years back, and it was asked, you know, can you get me an appointment uh, with someone pertaining to, you know, as an ambassador to an African nation? And they said no. And so it really comes down to the access and what can you do for me. And it's all, it's all about the Harlem resident. That resident they don't care about anything else as opposed to what you've done for me lately. And I think both of those candidates, uh, when it comes to central Harlem, uh, just were not prepared or ready to take on that, that, uh, that torch. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate that comment. Moving on to some national news, because uh, it always gets very interesting to get your take on national stuff. Eric Cantor, what the heck happened? Well, you know, it's funny. I think Eric Cantor's, uh, downfall is one that resonates to right now Washington's approval rating is about 7%. Uh, many, much of middle America has lost faith uh, in both the Democrat and Republican Party in Washington. Uh, as we can look at even with uh, the Tea Party, it, it's coming down to the messaging of what you're talking about. Folks are getting away, uh, for better reason, folks are getting away from the partisanship of politics and now they're focused on the progress of politics to say, what can you do for me? And are you giving me the time of day to listen to my issues? And I think that many folks, unfortunately, thought uh, Eric Cantor was out of touch. Uh, they thought that maybe their, their message was not being heard. And, and it's a warning for many other politicians that uh, the power of the vote is growing. And, you know, people are slowly becoming independent. I just recently read that 44% of Americans identify as independent, which means that folks are not caring whether a candidate is a Democrat or Republican. They're caring, once again, goes back to the central theme, uh, what's in it for me? And are you listening to what I'm saying? And so I think we're going to see more issues, uh, more elections being lost, uh, more seats being taken by outside candidates. Not just outside candidates, but extreme candidates. These are people who are on the wouldn't be so I wouldn't be so quick to say extreme because, you know, I always say one man's freedom fighter is another, another man's terrorist. And so I say that to say extreme is subjective. You know, it, it's more of listening to what people's concerns are. And if you get enough people elected, uh, then that person has the right to serve regardless of what their views are. Fair enough. Uh, Hillary Clinton. If she ran, it would probably be a gift to you and many of the people who align with your views now. That's a gift that keeps on well, giving if Hillary Clinton ran for president. But I think that's the problem. Mrs. Clinton, what has she done and what has she given? I mean, I think we've got to really go back over her career and really say not only has she been extremely lucky, but what has she really done for America? Uh, she served as First Lady, uh, attempted to get a health care bill passed as First Lady, was unsuccessful. She became the U.S. Senator of New York. Uh, I can't think of one piece of legislation that she did that was, success- that was not only successful, but I can't recall um, what it is that she's actually done. Secretary of State, I mean, do we really need to start to talk about Benghazi and, and many other uh, issues that 
really happened under her watch. And so I think we've got to be very careful. And it's not saying anything against Hillary Clinton. I actually personally like Hillary uh, as, 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 a, as a person and as, a, as an elected official. However, uh, we've got to get out of the mind frame of putting people in for a popularity contest. These are serious issues and serious times in a serious America. And so it's very important that we really begin to ask the question, what have you done? Uh, and at the end of the day, a person's best performance is their last performance. And I, quite frankly, I can't say that uh, I'm impressed to say that she's qualified enough to be president of the United States. Uh, I wouldn't begin to be talk about the current administration, uh, but now we're talking about Hillary Clinton. And so I think that it's, you know, one of the things Chet said that I actually agreed with is before we start getting into the hype of supporting Hillary just because, we really need to begin to ask the questions, uh, what has she done for America? How has she benefited America through the positions that, she's, that she has? And is she the most qualified person in 2016 on either side? You know, you've got some uh, qualified individuals on the Republican side. You've got some qualified folks on the Democratic side. So I'm more waiting on who else is going to come out of the box uh, before I begin to put my stamp of approval of who I support for the, pre the presidency uh, for 2016. What do you think of Cory Booker? Uh, Cory Booker is an interesting guy. You know, I, I think that uh, Mr. Booker uh, has a very bright future. Um, but I think, once again, it goes back to, I know there are some questions surrounding how he handled Newark. Uh, some people say that he moved Newark forward economically uh, and, and was a divisive leader in getting things done for a city that was at, often plagued with uh, crime and, 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 and poverty. Uh, the other side says that he used the city as a stepping stone uh, and really avoided um, the issues pertaining to the community and really was not present uh, for those living in Newark. And so I think it's a catch-22. Uh, you can't please everybody, but I think Cory Booker as a senator uh, will be will almost be the ex-officio ex Obama. Uh, I think that Obama would have been a great senator, uh, not necessarily a great president in my eyes, and I think Cory is going to take that reign as being uh, a great senator. I think Cory's future is very bright in the U.S. Senate. Uh, I think he's proven that he's not only got a track record to appeal to people, he can raise money, uh, but also he's a guy who uh, people like and he's going to be able to play and work on both sides of the aisle. I think he's got an interesting future. Mm -hmm. Recently, Speaker John Boehner announced that he was going to sue President Obama's administration. Do you think that it has merit, the lawsuit? Well, you know, it goes back to, you know, the question shouldn't be whether he's going to sue the president. The question should be uh, how has he been as the leader of the Republican Party uh, and, and as a leader of the conservative movement on Capitol Hill. Uh, I think 7% as an approval rating speaks volumes. And so I think before we can start talking into the legality of suing an administration, I think we first have to take a look into ourselves and say, have we been the best representation uh, of the conservative movement? Uh, I have my own opinion, but I think if you read the Tea Party's perspective of the conservative movement on Capitol Hill, then you'll see right now suing the president should be the least of their concerns. This is why I appreciate your your advice, uh, because you are not afraid to go up against people within the Republican Party who could potentially hire you as a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> well, from your mouth to God's ears. Mm -hmm. No. All right. And so the, the state of President Obama's presidency as he's moving into this lame duck session, if he hasn't done what you think or hasn't done things that you think he should have been doing or could have been doing, what could he be doing that would you think would propel his presidency uh, that we can hold 20 years from now look in the history of books and go, that was a great president? Well, you know, I think President Obama's uh, presidency is, is twofold. Um, I think for America, he's been an interesting president in that he has definitely tried to make everything fair. Uh, he has tried to balance uh, the country. He's tried to be a voice for the voiceless. Uh, but if you, if you for black America, uh, I think that he has actually been more of a hinder than a help. Uh, and I say that 
from the perspective that uh, this is a president that 97, 98% of African-Americans gave their vote to, yet many of the African-American concerns of the day uh, and issues have not been answered and have actually statistically gotten worse uh, under this president's administration. And so uh, I've always said it's, I don't have an issue with the person taking sides, just be able to defend and stand on your side. Um, I think this administration has been a, a, an administration that is too safe, um, has, has avoided taking stances, and it has actually cost specifically the black community uh, much more as opposed to if this president had taken a liberal perspective or had taken a more conservative uh, perspective and approach. Um, and so I think that it's going to be interesting. I think history uh, will treat President Obama uh, well on the area of the foreign policy, but I think it will, it will treat him extremely poor in the areas of economics and uh, if has the country moves forward uh, fiscally. Uh, I think on the flip side, uh, his predecessor, I think history will treat Mr. Bush very positive when it comes to foreign policy and being able to call out uh, a potential threat before it existed. Yet economically, um, you're, you're, I, you're, you're I, I sure? think I, there may be some issues there as well. You, you think that President Bush's lasting legacy will be the war in Iraq? Uh, to an extent, actually, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I apologize, I actually got that mixed up. Uh, I, think his, I think President Bush's uh, policy when it comes to the economy uh, will actually, history will treat it very, uh, excuse me, excuse me, the Iraq war, I think, history will treat President Bush very well, because if you think about it, uh, one of the things when it comes to foreign policy is to define radical extremism and actually call it for what it is. Um, I think the interesting part of that is that many of the radical extremists that we call enemies, uh, the country was once in bed with. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting time to see how we deal with the Middle East. The fact that you know, under President Bush's administration, we actually had more control uh, of working and, and we had a better relationship with many uh, with much of the Middle East as opposed to now, where now we have the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, which has pretty much controlled the entire region of Libya, Egypt, uh, uh, parts of Syria, which our relationship is dwindling uh, every month. And so we've essentially lost the Middle East under this administration. However, uh, economically, uh, we've had some major challenges. We had some major challenges under Bush, uh, which is interesting because the Bush administration really was not a conservative administration economically. Uh, we spent more on a war, and we spent more on other things that we probably didn't have the money to spend in the first place. Um, economically, looking fast-forwarding into the Obama administration, uh, we've had a, we had a much worse economy where you would think that the gap would have been slowed down, but the financial gap has been increased with more restrictions. Uh, I spoke to somebody the other day uh, that works for a particular bank, and the rate of uh, monetization and regulations on banks uh, is it, almost at a standstill, especially at a time when the administration expects banks to lend to minority lenders. And so you're almost telling banks to run, but you're holding their legs. Uh, that does not change an economy. And I think that, you know, it's about time we got somebody in the White House uh, that understood the ramifications of finances and actually may have taken an economics course um, because both uh, have not really moved the country forward uh, in a progressive and fiscally responsible manner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I want to, in our very few minutes, uh, as I start to wind down at the time, you have about five more minutes, um, I want to give you a plug for the work that you're doing with the veterans, but before you do that, I want to get your uh, reaction to President Obama's announcement that he is appointing uh, Robert McDonald, who was the former executive um, CEO at Procter & Gamble, to be the next chief uh, secretary at the Veterans Affairs Department. Well, you know, I'll say this. I won't speak too much uh, on my organization, but I will say that um, 
you know, it's about time. You know, the veterans crisis in America has been a big one for a very long time. It's not new. Um, I think the firing of Shinseki uh, was more one of politics, uh, not really one of progress, because you're still going to have the same issues. Um, I agree. I think that, you know, the nation should be in the business of privatizing this veterans affairs piece, because I think that it's not only too big for the federal government to handle, but I think that there are better people out here who can handle with veterans issues uh, rather than the federal government. I think the federal government is trying, and so I give them credit in that effort, but I think that there are uh, nonprofits, there are small organizations, larger, larger organizations, who can do more for veterans if given the opportunity and the financing at the federal level. Uh, I like the fact that I actually support the fact that it brings an outsider in uh, with a corporate economic background, business background, because I think that's what it's going to take to make sure that the end product of supporting our veterans is that our veterans are getting the help they, they need in a timely fashion. Um, I think that I like the fact that they're going to begin to hold certain VAs accountable uh, for how they treat our vets, because the bottom line is our veterans deserve it. Uh, they deserve to be put first. They gave their, you know, many of these guys are offering their lives and putting their lives on the battlefield. And so when they return home, the last thing that they should have to worry about is a meal, uh, where they're going to sleep, where they're going to eat, and their health coverage, and just the fact of being taken care of. And I think they served us, so it's time for Americans to start serving our vets. Yeah, I always think it's interesting. Whenever I hear of these scandals that happen within these administrations, and specifically within the departments, you always think, you know, we have very developed technology systems. There are very ways, various ways that we can check and balance ourselves. Yet we still seem to miss not small things, but, but some of the larger things. Uh, and, I, and I don't know if it's fair to blame the president. I don't know if it's fair to blame the secretary uh, overheading the department. Um, you know, there, there is certainly a long chain of command within many of these places and a lot of ways in which failures like this could have been caught, uh, but they seem to always fall through the cracks. I, I don't know structurally and institutionally how that happens. Somewhere, well, I mean, somewhere there's, lower there's, down there's the total, so I have to know that and say something. You know, much of this, Roy, actually goes back to um, the days of Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower warned of the military industrial complex. He warned that, you know, you've got to keep business out of the government and out of the military. Um, one of the things is from a systematic approach is that, you know, a lot of these guys going into our service, we thank them for their service, but these are these guys aren't, I mean, a lot of these people aren't Ivy League graduates. Uh, the military, in many cases, was the last option and opportunity for them at the same time. And so when they're coming back, many of these guys, if they come from broken homes, they don't have the uh, support system that maybe our other counterparts may have. And so if you don't have a support system, if you don't have, uh, you know, sufficient college education, uh, if you don't have a trade or a skill, then the likelihood that you'll suffer or, or experience a setback is very high. And that's what's happening with many of our guys, which leads to abuse, alcoholism. Uh, for some of our guys, or some of our veterans with PTSD, uh, many of them are having challenges, whether it's finding work or keeping work, uh, living with a relative, and so it's all subjective. And so uh, but there's a systematic approach to resolving the veterans crisis in America. And I actually think that it is too big for Washington to deal with. And so, like I said, I, I hope that the president uh, gives some kind of opportunities for privatizing some of those, these services. Uh, I think it will actually benefit the veterans. Uh, it will make it it's a job creator, so it creates an opportunity for people. Uh, to help, and I think that uh, he's going to be forced in that direction to take it there. Mm -hmm. Well, as always, just like with Chet Y, I, I always respect your your opinion, and the Republican Party should take note and hire you for some of it, uh, and I hope that as they move towards 2016, they do that. Well, the Republic, let me explain about political parties in these last two minutes. Um, Political parties will not end or resolve America's issues pertaining to poverty. That's really what this argument is about. It's about poverty. Uh, no matter how you wrap it up, shake it down, it's about poverty and it's about poor people and getting people the help that they need. Uh, parties are not designed to do that. It's the individuals within those parties. And so that's why 
uh, you know, the independent movement in America um, is one that is to be taken seriously. As you can see, it's almost 50% of voters uh, in today's world. And I think that is going to be the approach that's going to resolve our nation's poverty issue. It's not going to be Democrats, and it certainly won't be Republicans. Very well said. President Obama, despite what you think of him, has a policy within his administration. And I knew a few people who worked in the administration. They always said that it was drilled into their heads that people are policy. Uh, and so I, I don't know if you like the fact that I've compared your idea to what the president and his administration has pretty much excluded and all of the people who work there, but it's along the same lines, that people really are policy, and if you've got people who believe in people having the say in the government and being better off for it, then those are the kinds of people that they actually wanted to attract within the administration. Absolutely. All right, well, thank you again, and I'm sure that as the campaign season heads up, the Gist of Freedom will have you back to share your thoughts on the political campaign. All right. God speak. Thank you, sir. And be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. That was Brandon Bice, uh, independent uh, strategist um, who has been on Fox News and a whole bunch of other networks sharing his political insight. Uh, just one more plug for uh, our sponsor. This podcast was happily sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles for you to choose from, and you can listen to any of them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our URL, we have a specific website link just for our relationship with audible.com. You can go to www.thegistofaudiobooks.com. That is www.thegistofaudiobooks.com. Dot com. I'm Roy Paul filling in for Ilyash Shabazz. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Gist of Freedom. Until next time, bye. Mm-hmm.